0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org.
1: Good morning again. My
0: name is uh, David, and I'm on staff here as a worship leader and creative arts director, and I get the privilege every once in a while of getting to preach. Uh, and this particular Sunday is. Special for those of you over here, you may not have seen, but I was standing over here with my family as we dedicated our daughter, Rosalie. My dad is in town from California. Uh, Although my daughter and stepmom were not able to be here because of sickness, I'm glad to have my family and then my church family here. This is an important moment for our family. And so I would encourage you, parents, including myself, um, consider taking a moment uh, to write uh, a note or letter to your child that was just up here, explaining to them what, what just happened, telling them what we covenanted to do and what this church family covenanted to do, and including uh, the Pastor Brad prayed for them and that uh, Pastor Bert, one of our elders, prayed for them, and then seal it up and let them have it on the day they make a profession of faith. That's one thing you could consider doing to make this moment again uh, return to it when that, uh, when the Lord leads to that. Similarly, we have our Book of John journals as you're getting those out. And hopefully you're handwriting in these journals. Uh, Consider, as you've taken notes throughout the first four weeks, handing these journals down to your kids. Uh, Using them in discipleship with somebody else. Uh, If you have not got a blank one, they are not that expensive on Amazon. But using this handwritten way of connecting with other people. (sighs) So, there was a man in the desert... With naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locus. He ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus free. What would people think? Okay, let me explain what just happened here. <laughs> okay. Uh, children, be mindful of the music that you listen to from ages like. 10 to 18, because those songs and those bands, you will always remember those lyrics, and it will forever be the best music ever written, and you will argue with people older than you and younger than you that there's nothing better ever in whatever you were listening to at that age. I'm sorry, that's just how it's going to happen. So I couldn't read the passage of John for this morning without those words going over and over in my head. So that was the white boy rap of Toby Mac when he was with DC Talk on the landmark title track of Jesus Freak. So in my mind, that is the soundtrack that was playing as I studied for this text. And then the visual, if you remember flannel boards that were used in Sunday school in the 80s and even into the 90s, uh, the original touchscreen, right? So I have images of John the Baptist. Shaped by these paper cutouts that stuck to the flannel board by magic. So, this Sunday morning, I have the privilege of preaching from John 1, 19 through 28. Uh, so, feel free to turn there. As we've been walking through the book of John so far this year, we've already been introduced uh, to the baptizer, but in more abstract terms. Uh, so, let's be reminded of John 1, 6 through 8, and John 1, 15. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So the reason we've taken care to walk through the prologue of the Gospel of John, is because this is John the Evangelist's opening statement. So as Jim McLaughlin, legal expert, explained last week, John is making a case here. And he would have been a tremendous trial lawyer based on this work. So the prologue, verses 1 through 18, is the opening statement. And in legal dramas, which is the sum total of my experience with a courtroom, thankfully... The the trial lawyers, they get their chance to provide a compelling opening statement. It's intended to be a lens through which the judge or the jury will then see the rest of the case. So this opening statement is a lens through which they want the judge and jury to see everything else. So any any Perry Mason fans? Uh, Columbo? (coughs) Matlock? (laughs) Anything by John Grisham? You know how important the opening statement is is. Whether you're a prosecution or defense, you have to set the stage for a compelling narrative, a thread that is going to cause those, those issuing the verdict to, to follow you, right, from beginning to end. So John gives us here in the first 18 verses a compelling opening statement. The running themes, the whole case, and the pivotal, and pivotal in the, in the case, pivotal are the witnesses. So John mentions the baptizer twice in the opening statement. So you get the sense that this is a key witness. In some ways, John the Baptizer is a celebrity witness and/or expert witness. He's a well-known person in the land of Judea and an expert in, in the prophecy. And what he carries, what he says, carries various kinds of weight, popular weight and authoritative weight. So an analogy might be to consider. Uh, if there was a disagreement in physics uh, and it went to court and an attorney calls on Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, if you know who I'm talking about, uh, he's a pretty popular advocate for science and is often seen in various media, yet he's also done the work and he's a scientist in his own accomplishment. So this would be a good witness for the attorney to call because not only is deGrasse Tyson an expert in at least one facet of science, uh, he's also likable and popular Folks are willing to listen to him. So now that the prologue has finished, in verse 18, John, the apostle, begins to chart the narrative that will run for the next several chapters. So the opening statement is finished, and the first witness is called to give an account. So would you stand with me as I read the text? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptized. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Excuse me. There's a tickle right there. It's the tie. That's probably what it is. <laughs> so let's walk through the text uh, and clarify some of what's occurring here, and then I'll make a few observations to summarize. So I borrowed this sermon title, Eyewitness Testimony, from a fascinating article by Kevin Van Hooser on the authorship of John's Gospel. And I'll make mention of it at several points. So I apologize for those who are listening uh, later this week on podcasts. I meant I with the letter I, and I'll try to remember to clarify that a few times. But I was also impressed by the work on eyewitness, E-Y-E, witness testimony, and the gospel accounts done by Richard Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So in particular, Bauckham reminds us that this courtroom motif, is not a new thing. In fact, for us here at Grace, we spent several months in God's courtroom in the prophecy of Isaiah. Because God held court against the false gods of the nations surrounding Israel. And each chapter of Isaiah 40-55, through it gives a, a list of things God has against those nations. And the people of God are arranged as witnesses. And then the key witness, the star witness, if you will, of that section of Isaiah is the servant. The one who suffers in the place of and on behalf of the people of God. So John will place Jesus himself as the star witness, who suffers in the place of and on behalf of the people of God. Just a couple notes off the bat. uh, The term the Jews here is in no way to be taken as anti-Semitic. Jesus is Jewish, after all. Uh, Rather, John is referring to the Jewish opposition to Jesus, and he's pretty consistent in this usage through the book. Also, the Bethany location given here is a bit troublesome, because it's not the same Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And John is very specifically pointing to two locations. But this one is no longer a place we can find in modern Israel. So this is actually one of the ways we recognize the truth of the text. This testimony that's being given by the beloved disciple doesn't try to adapt to make itself more plausible. It gives the facts as the disciple knew them. We can trust that. But the main question that's at stake, in fact, the whole question of this case It's made clear in the prologue's opening statement. It's, who is Jesus? And in parallel to Isaiah, who is the true God? So this morning, I hope that all of us here would would say the same thing, that we would answer the same way. But if you're still considering who this Jesus was and is, and please, consider the testimony presented by John the Baptist or baptizer as called to give account by John the Apostle or John the evangelist, or the beloved disciple. So I'll try to be more consistent in my language here, but there are multiple names for these two Johns. Throughout this passage, and indeed throughout the book of John, John the baptizer was given the task of preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance and faith in the one who would come after him. He's preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance and faith in the one who would come after him. He's not telling them, hey, trust me. No, he's saying, hey, trust the one who is coming after me. And in verses 19 and 20, John John the evangelist, the writer, is helping to clarify John the baptizer's place in the story. So what's really fascinating is that John the baptizer, he knew his place in the story. He knew his task. He didn't waffle on the answer to this line of questioning from, let's say, for the sake of the analogy, the defense. John the Apostle calls his first witness, and he immediately allows the defense to go first, as it were. He's so confident in the testimony of John the Baptizer, he doesn't even feel the need to preface any more than he already did in his opening statement. So the leaders in Jerusalem probably sent a delegation of folks to check out John, because as first century historian Josephus records there were large crowds who came to hear John, and they were greatly moved by his words. So for whatever length of time that John had been out there preaching and baptizing by the Jordan, word had reached Jerusalem, and it made enough of an impact that this guy needed to be taken seriously. So the priests and Levites were asking John these questions for many reasons. One is to determine what to make of the crowds, He's got large crowds. Are they going to be violent? Are they going to be zealous? Also to determine where John's authority might be located and perhaps to do a little theological checkup. Like, what is this guy actually saying? So as you may remember, John is the son of Zechariah. We sang about this just two months ago. And Zechariah was a priest. So to be a priest in Israel, you had to be in the line of Aaron. It was a privilege of your birth. So John, by virtue of his birth, was in the line of Aaron and he could perform priestly activities. So this delegation of priests, some of whom may have known Zechariah or heard about his encounter with God 30 years ago, they wanted to make sure that John wasn't banking on his lineage and doing things outside of the temple that shouldn't be done. But all of this is wrapped up in the question that they posed to him. Who are you? John knew that the expectations for a Messiah were really high. And so it's recorded here that the baptizer confesses, does not deny, but confesses that he is not the Messiah. The results are in. This is a legal language again, right? Confession. He wants to be heard on the record as saying, I'm not the Christ. If I might pause in the text right here for a moment, let this question be posed to you. Who are you? Do we know our own place in the story? Who are you? The way we answer the question of who are you depends in part on our credibility. So the weight of John's confession that he's not the Messiah is born on the fact that his testimony is credible. The testimony of a witness, it depends in part on the who and the what but also on the credibility of the one bearing testimony. So this helps us understand how John the Apostle is arranging his witnesses throughout the book and it also challenges us. Is our own answer to who are you credible? So John denies being the Christ, but that didn't shake the defense yet. They needed to eliminate the other important possibilities, so they ask him if he is Elijah. So who is Elijah and why does that matter? Elijah was prophesied in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, awesome can also be translated terrible. It all depends on which side of things you're looking at it. But if you recall, again, your flannel graph stories, Elijah is assumed up into heaven. He doesn't doesn't die. He just slides right off the top, right? And so God had a special plan for Elijah, a prophet who walked closely with God. So since he did not die in the usual way, the religious folks were reasonably expecting a literal Elijah to show up and herald the Messiah's triumph. So there's there's actually a lot of irony in their asking this particular question, as you'll see when you read the Synoptic Gospel accounts. But for now, here in John's Gospel, the baptizer denies this identification too. So this leaves the defense delegation one more option, one more line of questioning. Are you the prophet? So I had forgotten about this one. But a prophet like Moses is foretold in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. And verse 18 specifically says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But then John answers yet again, nope, I am not this important figure either. So if John is preaching with the authority, because then they can either, that would at least give the Jerusalem leadership a framework to figure out how to deal with him. Because then they can either prove that he's not one of these three eschatological figures, or they can respond by otherwise controlling him or manipulating him or his followers. But John does not make it that easy for him. And in what sounds like exasperation, they respond, what do you say about yourself? But the first key witness, John the Baptist, he knows his place in the story. And he answers from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. And this prophecy is first delivered by Isaiah to the priests of Israel. And here, delivered by John to priests of Israel, make straight the way of the Lord. And as. DC Talk reminds me, every time I look at this text, John was in the wilderness, very literally. He was crying out in such a way that crowds were gathering and greatly moved by what he was saying. And John was crying out, make straight the way. So prepare the landscape for the arrival of the king. Prepare your own hearts for the one who is worthy of your affection and your loyalty. But what does it mean to prepare the way of Yahweh? The way of the Lord. For us, to prepare the way of the Lord is to announce the presence of Christ so that those who hear might become his disciples. To prepare the way of Yahweh is to announce the presence of Christ so that those who hear might become his disciples. To prepare the way of the Lord in Isaiah's time, when it was first uttered, was to make the path ready for the return of God's people from exile to their home. And here, we're hearing John the baptizer give richness to this prophecy as he recognizes his role as pointing to the presence of the Messiah, bearing witness to the Christ, so that those who hear are called to follow the Messiah themselves. Follow the Messiah who can truly bring them home. As I've mentioned, the priests and Levites who were questioning. So in this particular, asking questions rooted in the expectation and hope that the people of Israel had. So in this particular area, era, which is in the fullness of time, we find that the Sanhedrin, or the core religious leaders back in Jerusalem, they were especially sensitive to anybody who might fulfill prophecy. They were expecting a Messiah, an anointed one of God. That's what that means. They were expecting that person to fulfill what was said. So they were expecting somebody like Elijah. They were expecting this prophet Because it would indicate that God's plan was finally moving forward. So why does John answer, who are you, in this way? Well, they're looking for prophecy fulfillers. And although John denies their initial line of questioning, he gives an eyewitness testimony. He knows that there is a worthy one coming after him. And his job has been to prepare the way for this worthy one. In some ways, John's fulfillment of prophecy actually keeps him on the radar of these religious leaders. And you can find the rest of John's story in those other gospel accounts. And so John's answer may have temporarily silenced some of the priests and Levites as they tried to process what he was saying. But a group of, from the Pharisees who were there wanted to push the issue. So the Pharisees were a smaller group within the religious leaders of the first century. And they were meticulous at keeping the law of Moses. And they were even preparing this oral tradition that was even more detailed about what to do and not to do. And it indeed added even more restrictions and laws to what God had recorded in the Torah through Moses. They were very concerned with legal proceedings, as you might imagine. So they interrupt the defense counsel with a new line of questioning, trying to pin down John the baptizer. They wonder, since John isn't one of these prophesied figures then why is he practicing baptism? So John was preparing the way for believer's baptism. Jesus would actually institute. John was adapting the established practice of baptism as ritual cleansing, as preparation for the baptism that Jesus would establish. So next week, we'll see from the text that Jesus partakes in a baptism that takes the practice of immersion to a whole new level. And it's different from Jewish practice. But in verses 24 through 28, John, the author of this work, is distinguishing John the baptizer and Jesus. Just as he set us up for in the prologue, the opening statement. Right? John is not the light, he's pointing to the light. John is not the Messiah, he's pointing to the Messiah. John is not baptizing with real power, as it were, only ritual. Jesus will baptize in the spirit and transform the practice. So if this were in the courtroom, you can imagine the defense Pharisees would potentially have been frustrated with this answer that goes on the record. But they don't know how to respond, at least not in what's captured here. John answers their question in a way that redirects their attention to the next witness. He clearly separates himself from the messianic expectations that were freighted in at the beginning of this line of questioning. And in his own prophetic way, John the Baptist speaks with a perfect tense verb. So it says... There is even now one who stands among you. There is even now for the readers and the hearers of the gospel of John, one who stands among us. We're invited to be witnesses to him. So right now, you're invited to consider the testimony of John. You're a part of this. So he has borne witness to the worthy one who stands even now or sits even now in our midst. So through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus sits with you. As we are the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, he very literally sits with you, right beside you. You may have even been hugged by him this morning. As we conclude this morning, we must consider the importance of testimony. So first, testimony in the Gospel of John. John the Apostle is calling witnesses to bear testimony. Okay, They're not just giving their opinion about something or reflecting on the meaning of something that happened to them. These witnesses are laying out truth. So Kevin Van Hooser claims that testimony can be received only on its own terms. It can't be reduced to metaphysical symbols of the human condition or moral examples. So hear this again. Testimony can only be received on its own terms. You can't reduce it to metaphysical symbols or moral examples. So John the writer and John the Baptist are both witnesses. They have seen Jesus. They have encountered him. They have known him. And in that way, they are eyewitnesses, not just E-Y-E eyewitnesses. Their testimony is not something that needs to be interpreted. It's a report on what they've seen, heard, felt, and known. This is where it diverges from an eyewitness-only testimony in which something is seen alone. So it's like if in Harnett County, out in the middle of the night, you were to see a UFO, right? An object with lights up in the sky somewhere, and then it's gone. That kind of data needs to be interpreted, right? But this is not the testimony that's given in the book of John. We have seen his glory John declares. And let me clarify, you don't just see God's glory as flashing lights. It's a weight. It is felt and known. But hear this, however. The testimony of John's gospel account is such that it's not understood if it's not believed. So this account is given in such a way that if you don't believe, then you won't understand This reminds us of what Anselm said, I believe so that I might understand. We have faith seeking understanding. If you believe, then John's gospel can be understood at deeper and deeper levels. If you don't believe, then how in the world would you make sense of eat my flesh and drink my blood from John 6? Or being born again from John 3? Nicodemus illustrates how to misunderstand Jesus there, right? Because he didn't yet believe. And yet, Jesus will bear witness to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus hears and responds to that testimony. So recall the opening statement from John. Right in the middle of that prologue, all who believe are children of God. So Nicodemus then would understand. It's likely that Nicodemus actually remained a follower of Jesus from this point on. And he would then bear witness to those around him. And this is the second kind of testimony that we must recognize. Not only the testimony from the witnesses in John's gospel, but the importance of the testimony of us, of God's people. So in one way of setting up the analogy, John the apostle is making a case for Jesus. He's calling witnesses. The religious leaders are on the defense. And who is the jury called to weigh this account? You. Whether you knew it or not, you have been called for jury duty during this sermon series. And this is a jury summons that you can't get out of. You can't just say, oh, I think Jesus is a good teacher. Since I already have an opinion, can I be dismissed? Because it's not just you as an individual, but all the watching world that hears this testament. It begins with you because somebody told you, and then ultimately it spreads to the ends of the earth. We've been tasked with telling this good news of who Jesus is to the whole world. So how are you bearing testimony? The testimony of the people of God across the ages is a bit of a pendulum. And the testimony of the people of God in both the larger Catholic world and in Southern Baptist life has currently been brought to account for hidden sin. So this credibility issue undermines the testimony that we bear. So, okay, that's overwhelming. So let's change the perspective a bit. You and I may not be responsible for the testimony of the whole SBC or the global church, but we are very much responsible for bearing testimony to our family, our immediate neighbors, our coworkers. These are all people we see regularly anyway. So let's start there, by walking incredible, faithful discipleship with them. And you may or may not be surprised how God begins to move in our towns, at our university, in our state. So as God's people, as his children, because you believe, how are you being an eyewitness? For example, do you share, oh, I heard this one time about God. Or do you share, this is what the Lord did for me. That's the difference in testimony. I've heard this thing about God. That's an eyewitness testimony. But this is what the Lord did for me. That's an eyewitness testimony. Or do you say, my pastor says this about the book of John? Or do you say, I read in the book of John. Would you like to read it with me? Be not only a witness of what God has done in Jesus, but testify to what God is doing even now in you and in the world because you are in Christ. What have you witnessed? Will you bear testimony? Remember, testimony has to be received on its own terms. So when you share what God has done in your life, the hearer has to receive it as you tell it. You're not making some metaphysical, metaphorical, mythical, symbolic case, unless you want to go there, like nerds like me. But rather, testimony is recounting what really happened to real people. So John the Apostle calls John the Baptist to bear testimony. In his case, for Jesus' worthiness, for Jesus' place as the Messiah, the Christ. The baptizer's not making a case for Jesus' moral example, or some philosophical examination of Jesus, he's bearing testimony that this one who is coming is more worthy than he can even explain, and John is preparing the way for him. So now that you've heard this testimony, you must make a decision whether to believe it or not. And as John, as John's opening statement tells us, if you believe, you're a child of God. If you believe, you are a child of God. This is how you can answer, who are you? You see, the answer to the question, who are you, should always point to the soon-coming king we follow as disciples. John the Baptist answers, they all do that. He deflects the questions of the defense and uses his answers to point to Jesus. Even though he hadn't even baptized his cousin yet in the narrative here. And we'll see, even John didn't fully recognize Jesus as Messiah at first. But John knows how to answer, who are you? In light of what God had promised in the scriptures, and in light of the truth that the Messiah was coming. John wasn't the light, he was bearing witness to the light. So may you, disciple, answer that you are a follower of Jesus. May you answer that you're in Christ. That you are a child of God. That you are loved faithfully and without fail by the God of the universe. That's who you are. And then you're a husband, father, worship leader, etc. And finally, point to Jesus. We've heard this multiple times already. But always, always point to Jesus even if he's hidden in the midst of those who ask. Because it's not your job to open up eyes, to unstop ears, or make hearts alive. Rather, trust the work of the paraclete. We'll learn about him soon. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, who is even now at work in you and in the world. Don't strive to do the things that you can't do, but be faithful to do the things that God has enabled you to do, and if you've heard and believed these testimonies, then you can bear witness. You can prepare the way. You can point to Jesus, even when he seems veiled by the distractions of the world or the difficulties of suffering. Remember that even now, he stands in our midst, and you can testify to that. We may not know how God is working in a given situation. We may not understand how Jesus will be glorified in a circumstance. But he is coming. He has rescued us before. He will rescue us again. He is faithful to keep his promises. And even if he's hidden in our midst, hidden in the midst of our lives, he is present. He's coming again. Help, be, help people Be prepared to respond to Jesus. Testimony calls us to bear witness, to be the eyewitness. So reading what John has recorded and what John the baptizer will proclaim in next week's text, it's it's called us to bear witness if we believe. And as you give your testimony, it calls those hearers to respond. So may we all take advantage of the scripture's witness to Jesus. And behold the Lamb of God who's taken away our sins and the sins of the world if they believe. Would you pray with me? God, may you be glorified in the ways that we continue to bear witness. Help us to shift, if we need to, from eyewitness testimony that's just observing to the eyewitness testimony that recalls what you've done for us. We thank you for this one who went before to make straight the path of the Lord. Help us to walk in that way and continue to make the way plain for those who would see and fear and put their trust in Jesus. We pray that you be glorified in all the ways that we exalt Christ in our midst, in all the ways that we seek to be established by the truth, and certainly in all the ways that we go and bear witness, that we go as givers of a testimony, and take us into all the world, starting with our families. It's in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, that we pray. Amen.